We're starting a new series in the life of our church, and we're calling it We Believe, Christian Essentials. And as we celebrate our first birthday as a church, I just want to say that the first few years of planning a church, um, they're really foundational, actually. They're quite foundational years. And what I mean by that is that as we began from day one, and as we grow together, those years are crucial for laying a good foundation for our church. And the way we do this at Proclaim by making a foundation is actually through the Word of God preached. Um, I trust that as we go through these really important foundational years, that the Holy Spirit is working in you and that uh, we'll be working in our hearts as we change from, uh, that we will change from, from reading God's Word and, and that God's Word would lead the way in our lives. Um, the foundation laying as a church began last year. I don't know if you remember, but we started back in February last year and we looked at the book of Colossians. We did this to, to figure out what it means to walk in Christ. And then we went to the book of Ruth. Uh, we looked at what it was like to go through hardship, um, particularly as a church and, and individually, and to see God's mercy through it, to see God's providence and his redemption walking with us as we journey through life with Jesus. Then we devoted time to the ripple effect, because as a, as a church, this was an evangelism series, and as a church, we always want evangelism to be important for us. Uh, we can't forget the mission that we're called to, and so we devoted time to the importance of having the gospel essential in our lives and sharing it with others in practical and relational ways. And then after this, we looked at the Gospel of John, uh, and we're going to continue this later this year, uh, but we looked at the first three chapters, and the Gospel of John helps us to understand and, and equips us to believe that Jesus really is um, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have life in Jesus' name. And then we stopped in the, the book of John for a little bit, and we went through an Advent series leading up to Christmas, and that equipped our hearts to understand the promises that were made in the lead up to Christmas, and the promises we're still looking forward to when Jesus returns. And we, we equipped our hearts in this way. And then finally, um, throughout January, we've just come off a series in Psalms, because it was an appropriate time at the start of the year to reflect and assess and evaluate our spiritual lives and how we're going with the heart stuff. And all of this is intentionally planned out for us in laying a foundation in our lives. All of it led by the Word of God, all from God's Word leading the way. And so we're heading into year two, year two of our church being around, and we're going into this We Believe series. And here's my heart for it. I want us as a church to be able to understand where everything fits in the Bible. Um, I want us as a, a church to be able to know deeply and truly what it is that we believe, that the essentials, the fundamentals of what Christians believe. And if you're here today and you wouldn't regularly come to church or call yourself a Christian, I'd love for you to take this journey with us. If you just aren't sure about how everything fits together, this is going to explain what it is, what, what it is to be a church, what it is to worship God, who God is, what he's like, following Jesus, living life in a church community, and what the gospel is all about. It's all in here. If you, if you are a Christian, I want this series to be able to enable you, to enable you in your life that when you're talking with others about church and faith and life and Jesus, that you don't just get asked a question and you say, well, I think that faith is this, or, you know, I think Christianity believes this, or, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sure actually what the church thinks about that, or, or what Christians think about that, or perhaps I've come to my own conclusion about this, 
This is a moment where our church can focus and go in deep in the fundamentals, to go deep in the essentials of Christianity so that we can say with full conviction, this is what we believe. That saying, we believe, is something we've adopted from the Nicene Creed, which we just said together as a church. And the Nicene Creed has a lot of what we're going to cover in this series, actually. To say the statement, we believe, it's, it's a really special statement, actually, especially in today's culture. Uh, today's culture, you can believe whatever you want. But as a church, we're saying, actually, as a collective group, we do believe in this. And, and I don't know what your church background is, uh, but many different churches do things in different ways. I grew up with a Baptist, Baptist background. So the idea of saying a creed like we just did never happened. <laughs> never happened in my church. I, I didn't know what a creed was. And so when I moved out of home and I started going to different churches, I actually found it really weird that they would say this thing together, this, this creed. And now I found my home in being an ordained Anglican minister. Um, and if you went to a traditional Anglican church, you would say a creed like we did every week. We don't say it every week uh, because, well, timing actually is really a big key. We don't have time to say it every week. Um, but also the reason is because when we say it, we want it to mean something. We don't want it to become routine. We want it to be special every time. Um, but we probably will say it a bit more often as we do this We Believe series. But what I found moving um, in my heart as I move from church background of no creed to saying the creed, is that when you do get up together and you say what you believe, it actually does something in your heart. Um, especially if it's not routine. Because what happens when you stand together and you say the creed is that we can have all different kinds of backgrounds and ages and stages of life and different ethnicities, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, but none of that matters when you say the creed. Because when you stand together and you say, we believe, this is what we believe, it doesn't matter about any of that other stuff. What matters is that you're united in what you believe. And can you think of anywhere else in the world where we can do something like that that is so unique and so beautiful? So our series is going to cover the essentials of what it means to be a Christian. In Christianity, there's a lot of important things. There's a lot of things that you could have up for debate as of discussion, but the things we're going to cover are essential. These are essential beliefs of being a Christian. And in saying that these things are essential, it's actually quite a special thing to go through. But in another sense, it's actually quite aligning for our hearts to do this. Because in saying that we believe in the essentials, it's not something new that we're discovering. We live in a world that thinks that new is always better. See, when I, um, you'll know that I read the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids recently. Uh, and any, any, every single time we finished another book, I'd ask them, which book has been your favourite so far? And the answer was always, that one. They would always respond with, the one we just finished. Because in their minds, new is always better. But newer is always better. It doesn't actually work with Christianity. Because our desire as a church and as Christians is not to be newer. In fact, we're trying to do the opposite. We don't want to be a new thing. We actually just want to be faithful to an old thing. We want to be faithful to an ancient thing. And that should comfort us, especially as a new church plant. We actually aren't desiring to do anything different to what the church has been doing for thousands of years. 
We are a part of a long tradition here at Proclaim, a long tradition of faithful churches full of God's people where God is faithfully keeping to his promise that he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So getting the essentials right is really important. In any profession, in any profession, how do you move up in the profession? It's by getting the fundamentals of the profession right. In any sport, how do players and teams win? They get the fundamentals of the game right. You would never, ever hear someone you know, getting up after a win of a, of, of a sport event and say, oh, you know, how did your team win? They said, oh, we just tried something different. No, 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 they always say the same thing. We just kept to our process. We kept to the fundamentals. My heart is that our church will be a church that gets the fundamentals right. In 1961, there was an American Christian pastor named A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. He is profoundly right in what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He, he continues, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or what she leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. So what we're going to do today is look at who God is. We're going to spend a few weeks looking at different aspects to answer this question about who God is. But today I just want us to see a couple of things from Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, um, that God is a God of holy love. So we're going to be on page 571 in those blue Bibles, so keep that there. Before you even get there, though, something we have to understand about God that's not said here but said in other places of the Bible is that God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And when you start talking about Trinity in church, people usually go, okay, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> uh, too hard, thanks. Uh, I, I don't want to hear about it. I'm, I'm actually not going to say much about this. Here's all I want to say. Trinity means God is three in one, three distinct but equal persons in one. And if you're the person who says one plus one plus one does not equal one, that's too hard. Um, all I want to say is it doesn't have to be too hard. We don't need to understand every part of how this works. And just remember that God doesn't abide by our laws. He doesn't uh, abide by our nature and our understanding. He's the one who created it. He's the one who created our laws and nature and understanding. So um, don't write off Trinity. Don't judge God and write him off because of our understanding, because we can't understand it. You don't need to understand every part of it. But instead, would you just turn to him and praise him? Turn to him and praise him for how amazing he is. And so God the Father, the first person in the Trinity, what is God the Father like? What is his character? What is his nature? Isaiah 6, 1 to 8 shows us that God is a God of holy love, meaning that God is holy and everything that the word holy encapsulates, but also he is love and all the word that love in the Bible encapsulates. And Isaiah 6 is going to show us both. 
He is holy, but he is love. So let's look at it. Isaiah 6 verse 1. Here's how it starts. In the year the king Uzziah died. This is really helpful for us um, because it gives us historical setting about where this, what is happening. So um, King Uzziah became king of Judah at age 16, and he was considered a good king for most of his life. He didn't, he didn't end well, though. He actually finished his life in arrogance and sin, and he literally paid for his life with it. He ruled for 52 years, and Israel had a prosperous reign. 52 years is a long time. So just feel like you're part of Israel for just a moment. Put yourself in this nation's shoes. 52 years after one king and their king has died. So for God's people, um, what's happening in this nation at the moment, people who relied so heavily on their king, this would be huge for them. Heavy, time of mourning, a time of anxiety, a time where the whole nation would feel unsettled because times are changing. And whenever times change, that's hard. So in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Just have a look at that word Lord in verse 1. It's not in capital letters, you'll notice. That means that this is not a time where God's name is used, Yahweh, um, but this actually is um, God's title. He is Lord, his role, not his identity. So it's it's a description of who God is. And who is he? He's, he's royalty. He's the Lord. Now, this is important because what it means is that Isaiah's vision is allowing him to compare between two kings, King Isaiah and the Lord, the royal God. And the comparison is no comparison at all. One king has died. The other lives. One king is no longer on the throne. The other reigns forever and is still on the throne. One king ended his life in sin. The other is holy. One is in a line of sinful kings of Israel. The other is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're supposed to see that contrast. And Isaiah sees the Lord, the supreme and powerful God. Could you, could you imagine seeing the Lord? It's not often done in the Bible at all that someone sees the Lord. Um, In Exodus, when Moses is on Mount Sinai after God rescued his people from Egypt and slavery, Moses is bold enough to ask God to show him his glory. In his time leading God's people, Moses has seen everything. He's seen a burning bush that didn't catch fire. He's seen powerful signs happen where his staff was thrown on the ground um, and became a snake. He's seen God bringing down plagues. He's seen a pillar of cloud Um, a fire by night leading God's people, he's seen the Red Sea split in two so that God's people could escape being hunted down by Pharaoh and his army. He's seen God's people rescued from slavery. He's seen bread from heaven come down to feed a nation. He's seen a lot, right? And Moses is on Mount Sinai with God and he says, God, there's one more thing I want to see. I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. But Moses can't even see God's face because it would be too much for him. God says, if you saw my face, you would die. So God puts Moses into the cleft of a rock and says, I'm going to cover you with my hand until I've passed by, and then I'll take away my hand, and and you'll see the back of me, but not my face. 
And so Moses sees the back of God, and as he comes walking down the, um, down the mountain, the Bible says his face was shining like the sun, so much so that people couldn't look at him uh, because it was too bright. And they made him put a veil on his face. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And Isaiah sees the train of God's robe filling the whole temple. Just think about that. that The hem of the bottom of the robe of God is wrapping around and around and around to fill the entire space of the temple. What's Isaiah telling us? He's seeing the majesty and power of God. And then he looks up. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So if you don't know what seraphim are, they're angelic beings. And these angels are designed for one purpose. They're designed for being in the presence of God. Just think about that for a moment. God has created these angels to be in his presence. What an incredible design. Like God cre- creates and designs. He's a creator God. And, and the things that we see on this, this earth are things like fish. Uh, you know, he creates fish to have gills so that they can live in the ocean. He creates mountain goats that I don't know how they do it, but they climb better than us. They can get anywhere on mountains. He creates chameleons that can blend into their surroundings and we cannot see them. And he creates angels that are purpose-built for being in the presence of God. They actually need extra wings, right? They don't need six wings. They, they have two to fly, but they need two to cover their face and two to cover their feet um, to, to cover themselves from the sheer brilliance of God's glory and his presence and his holiness. And these seraphim begin to speak. They begin to sing about the holiness of God. Verse 3, one calls to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the English language, if, if you want to give emphasis to a word that we read, um, it's actually quite simple. All we would do is put an exclamation point on it. Or maybe we would underline it or you know, put bold in its font. And if we speak, we emphasize it usually by saying it was really good or you know, it was really fast or really amazing. In Hebrew, they emphasize something by repeating a word. So uh, in the Bible, in John's Gospel, we get truly, truly. You know, it's emphasizing the, the point. Um, amen and amen in Revelation. But here we get the song of heaven and the holiness of God is emphasized more than anything else in the Bible. It's three times. It's not done three times anywhere, any other place in the Bible except but when we talk about the holiness of God. And what it's trying to say is that God's not just the holiest. He's not just the holiest of the holy. He's the holiest of the holiest of the holy. This is what the angels are singing. And it's the song that they sing, and it's the song that we will sing one day um, that's mentioned in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy. 
that God is the holiest of all, that he's not sinful like you and me, that he's set apart, that, that he's moral perfection, and he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, and he's all-knowing, and he's the most incredible of anyone to be found anywhere, anywhere. <laughs> Isaiah has seen and heard the holiness of God, but to complete his sensory experience, verse 4 says, he now feels it and he smells it. He feels the holiness of God as the doorposts shake. And he smells the holiness of God as the smoke fills the temple. How would Isaiah be feeling right now, you think, in this vision? I think he'd be feeling completely crushed by the holiness of God. He sees it, he hears it, he feels it, he smells it. It is complete immersion into the holiness of God. And so it's no wonder that Isaiah responds the way he does. In verse 5, he just says, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. From page to page, the Bible continually reminds us that we are sinful. That we are not God. This moment is just another in the long line of moments like this. We are not God. Isaiah sees it. I'm not God. Woe is me. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is supreme. He is the only wise and holy God. This is Isaiah's vision. It's a vision of a God who is holy. You know, in our world of of church, many churches do not understand this, this concept of holiness the holiness of God. I think we've thrown this away. We lose the God of holiness, which means we throw away the God of beauty and majesty because it's in the holiness of God that we find beauty and majesty. We live in a world where where it's not about holiness, it's about what we need. So the church fits God to our ideas of what we need of him. So instead of us being sinners in the sight of God and saying that, we'll say something like, "We're, we're just a little bit broken. And we need a life coach. God is our life coach. Instead of saying that God is judge, we'll emphasize that God is love. No one wants to hear about judgment. Just show us the God of love. But Isaiah sees the real thing. There's there's no smokescreen and mirrors here. He sees the holiness of God and it confronts him. Because he knows he's in the Lord's presence. He is sinful. No throwing away the majesty of God here in the sight of God. In this moment, he sees the Lord, the Holy One, high and lifted up, and he is confronted with how sinful he is in the sight of the holy, holy, holy God. And he says, woe is me. Like, I am lost. That word uh, lost in Hebrew is the same word in, later in Isaiah that is used to describe the destruction of a city. So he's literally saying, I'm in ruins. I am destroyed. It's what his soul feels like. When when he's faced with the reality of a holy God, it's like the very weight of Isaiah's body is about to crumble on the ground because God's holiness is on him and he feels it. When a prophet comes uh, with a message from God, it's usually one of two messages. So they'll either say, blessed are you, and they'll they'll come with good news. The blessing of God is on you. 
or it's bad news. And they'll say, woe to you. You know, um, God, the condemnation of God is on you. Well, this prophet Isaiah right here in this moment, the prophet of Israel who is considered one of the most upright and righteous people in the Bible, is confronted with his own sin. And in the sight of God, and he says, woe is me. Woe is me. I have sinned. I am undone. I am ruined. God cannot stand to look at my sin. And Isaiah looks at his own life and he sees that he is covered in it. Even his lips he mentions. Isaiah was a prophet called by God and his gift was to speak God's word with his lips. This was the way Isaiah served the Lord. But in comparison to God's holiness, even his lips, the things that he uses to serve the Lord are stained with sin. And so this begs the question, if God is so holy, and even Isaiah, the righteous prophet, is confronted with his sin, how can God be anything but turned off and angry with us? And here's the answer. The answer is good news. God is holy, but he's not just holy. He's love. And God does something about our sin, and he does something about Isaiah's sin. You can see this because God doesn't take the path um, of what we see. He doesn't take a progressive view of Christianity and say, oh, you know, Isaiah, yeah, you've sinned, but it's a pretty small thing. Like, it's not that bad. It's not a big deal. Like, you'll be okay. No, no, no. God is too holy. But at the same time, God is not just moral and religious in his view of Christianity. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 Isaiah, you're cooked. You're done. You need to stay away from me because you're guilty. Actually, we see something in the middle, don't we? What do we see? We see love come down from heaven to rescue Isaiah. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. See, the problem with God's holiness and our sin is that they are so incompatible. It's the holiest of holiest of holy beings, and we are sinful. God can never stop his holiness, and we can never stop our sin. And the guilt and weight of our sin hangs over us, but love comes down. God comes down and takes away Isaiah's guilt. For Isaiah, this came in the form of one single coal from the altar. Now, what's an altar? This is a place of sacrifice. You would see this a lot in the Old Testament. And when someone sacrificed an offering like for God's people, it was usually an animal on the altar. And there was a symbolic exchange that would happen where the animal would cover the sin and the guilt of a person. The animal would die taking the place and the punishment of the sin of the person. And then God providing one single coal from the altar and putting it to Isaiah's mouth for his sin to be taken away. This is a picture of a promise. It is God cleansing a sinner because not only is he holy, but he is love. And as soon as the coal touched the lips, you notice that? As soon as the coal touches the lips, his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. 
This just shows us that grace, the grace that God gives us, the undeserving favour that God gives us is not cheap. There's a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lived in the time of World War II and he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And this is all about the fact that grace isn't cheap. He emphasises the favour that we, we get that we don't deserve from God and we will treat it like it's cheap because the church loves to talk about the benefits of Christianity without the cost. It costs Jesus his life. So no, grace isn't cheap. The, bur- the coal is burning hot and it's placed right on Isaiah's lips. That would hurt, right? I was just reminded about how much more that would hurt than what happened to me this morning. I was driving here, had a hot coffee, touched my lips, burnt my lips. That's not a hot coal. <laughs> this is a hot coal. God grants us grace and it's free but it's not cheap. It's going to cost you forfeiting your life for the sake of this holy and loving God. Grace is given for free, but it's not cheap. So Isaiah gets what he desperately needs. He sees a holy God, but he also sees a God of love who offers grace and forgiveness. A God who takes away guilt and sin. And for us, of course, this is the offer given to us from Jesus. When Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God, he saw how sinful he was. But here's the thing. The cross that Jesus died on does the same thing for us. That Jesus had to come and die for sin is huge, isn't it? Because in doing so, what it means is that we actually have to admit how lost and flawed we are. We have to admit that we're so lost and flawed and weak that we can't actually save ourselves. We can never be good enough to be in the sight of God's presence. We are so bad that only the death of the Son of God can save us. But at the same time, when Isaiah's sin was atoned for, he saw grace. And the cross does this for us too. When Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, showed his love for you so much that he was willing to go to the depths of death to take your guilt and atone for your sin. That's love. You are loved and accepted and valued and he deals with your wrong and your guilt and your sin and atones for it and takes it out of your system and puts it on Jesus. So can I just say, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, how would you like Jesus to say this to you today? If you're a Christian, do you need the reminder to run to the one who says this to you? He's right here. His arms are open wide saying, your guilt can be taken away and your sins can be atoned for. God can do that for you today. Why? Because Jesus has taken your place. That when you trust in Jesus as Saviour and Lord and you finally see the holiness of God for yourself and you see the sinfulness of your sin and you say, woe is me, like Isaiah did, that God will put that woe onto his son. Would you like Jesus to say to you, your guilt can be taken away and your sin can be atoned for? Do you want this? Because God is holy. He can't overlook sin. He's just, 
But in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for sin. God is holy, but he's love. And love comes down in the form of Jesus and takes away sin. Let's look finally at verse 8. Here's Isaiah's response in light of this. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Because this is what a vision of love does. A triune, holy God of love does this. It causes you to see the holiness of God, but then the love of God. And and it ends with a response of a life filled with serving the God of holy love. And again, it's not cheap. You can't respond by hearing the holiness of God, but then the love of God that he would send his son and say, yeah, thanks, God. Thanks for that. I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you go away on holidays with your family and and you get someone to to house it for you. You go away and you have a great time. But you find out that while you're away, that a bill comes in the mail for you. So when you get back from your holidays and the house sitter says to you, oh, you know, everything was fine, looked after everything, all, all good for you. But you did get a bill while you were away. Yeah, you got this bill, and um, don't worry about it, though. I I paid it for you. What would you say? Well, the way you would respond would depend on how much the bill was. And so you said to them, well, can you tell me how much the bill was? And they said, oh, you know, it was was nothing. It's just a $2 bank charge. No no problem. Don't worry, man. I got you. When you found out how much it would be, what would you say? You'd be like, oh, well, thanks, man. (laughs) Thanks for paying that bill, $2. Yeah, great. I could probably give it to you. I've got $2 in my car. It's really nice of you. But what if you go away and your house sitter gets the bill and pays for it and you get home and you say to them, well, tell me how much the bill was and, they, and you had a bill for a mortgage for your house. You know, if, you, if you've just bought a house in Clyde North, your mortgage bill might be something like $600,000. You've got $600,000 left to pay for your mortgage. And they say, oh, don't worry, I've got you. You had $600,000 on your mortgage, but I paid it. What would you do when you found out how much was paid? Would you say, oh, cool, thanks, man. (laughs) You know, that's really nice of you. Not at all, right? Like, you'd probably not be able to speak. And when you did, you'd be like, did I hear you right? Do you have any idea what you've done? Now, do you really understand how much debt you've taken away from me? See, as Christians, we have the grace of God in our lives. We have the grace of God in our lives. Our guilt has been taken away and the debt of sin is atoned for. And some of us treat it like it's nothing. We'll say, yeah, thanks, God. That's cool. That's nice of you. We've got to respond the way Isaiah does. See, he sees his sin. He's confronted with it. Woe is me, I am ruined, I am unclean. And then God comes down and he takes his sin and his response is, here I am. It can only be the response. Here I am, send me. So I just want to leave you with one last question that we all must answer. What will you do in response to the vision of this God of holy love? This is week one. 
Week one of, of the We Believe series. God is. Can you answer what God is? Because these are the Christian essentials. Write this in your heart. Let's be the, a church that knows the essentials, that understands that God is a God, a triune God of holy love. Let's pray. God, we're so humbled by who you are, that you are a triune God, that you are a God of holy love, that your grace is overwhelming. Forgive us, Lord, because like Isaiah, when we see your holiness, uh, we are confronted with our sin and guilt and shame and we are left in ruins. Lord, may our response be, here I am, send me. Would you make this the response of our hearts? We pray this for our sake and your glory. Amen.